Turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We return to this text. I was with you a few weeks ago and we went through it verse by verse. And now we want to go back to it. And we first saw the horror of all that happened at sea as well as the hope that was there. But this morning we want to look at principles of godly leadership that flow from this text. Now, I'll not take time to read all 44 verses to you. Hopefully you will remember the flow of it. But it was a it was a tragic journey that came at the end of Paul being under house arrest for some two years in Caesarea. Finally, he was sent to Rome and to stand before Caesar. And this is the story of that fateful voyage and the shipwreck. And this was a fascinating account with some remarkable insights that I believe the, the Lord would have us ponder, especially with respect to, number one, the ravages of sin upon both men and creation. We see that in their wickedness. We saw that in the storm and so forth. Secondly, we witnessed the merciful hand of of an omnipotent God that would reach down and tenderly pluck from the sea both saints and sinners. Thirdly, we also see further the validation of the Scripture's claim, the repeated claim of the Word of God to be exactly that, the infallible record of the Word of God, the inspired record of God. And, of course, this was confirmed by the amazing Detailed accuracy of the historical account pertaining to geography and navigation and all of the historical context that was involved. All that has survived, as you will recall, scientific scrutiny. But finally, and what we will look at this morning is a subordinate theme that emerges from the text that I believe deserves our attention. Namely, the stunning leadership role of the Lord's servant and the prisoner, the Apostle Paul. I spent much time in this text and saw numerous principles of, of godly leadership that can be identified. But this morning I'm going to dwell on ten that really stood out to me and certainly brought conviction to my heart. And so I will highlight these ten this morning. Now before I do, let me give you the big picture. Sometimes... We forget the overall context of what God is doing in his reign over man. Originally, you will recall back in Genesis 1 that man was given dominion over all of the earth and every created thing. Genesis 1:26. And Adam was God's chosen representative to speak and act and rule on his behalf over the earth. But because of Adam's sin... All of that was nullified. Adam's sin literally nullified his mediatorial position upon the earth. And as a result, both the realm of his dominion and, and his posterity were cursed by God. And it's a curse that remains in effect to this very day and will remain so until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, within a short period of time after Adam's sin, we read in Genesis 6:11 that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And you will recall that as a result of this, God destroyed every person on the earth except for Noah 
and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Many theologians believe that an estimated seven billion people were drowned. And then after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah that he would never again smite every living thing, according to eight, Genesis 8.21, that he would never again destroy all of man in such a way. And he gave the rainbow as a token of that promise in Genesis 9. But at that time, another very significant event occurred. And that is the divine authorization for the institution of human government. You see, since God would no longer judge man and his wickedness by drowning them, as he promised, it became necessary for him to use another means to suppress the lawless proclivities of mankind to prevent him from destroying himself. No longer would there be the fear of this kind of flood, so he used something else and he instituted human government to protect and preserve and promote the welfare of the peoples upon the earth. And you will recall that capital punishment became the most fundamental principle of government. That was set forth in Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6, where God says that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And of course, this underscores the sacredness of human life. So since that time, we see that God mediates his rule over mankind through human rulers, most of which do not honor him. But nevertheless, they are ordained by God as his servants, whether they realize it or not. And according to Romans chapter 13, if you read the first six or seven verses, you will see that God says that they are literally ministers of God to you for good. That's what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Spirit, that these rulers are ministers of God to you for good and avengers who are to bring wrath upon those who practice evil. And you must remember that that God is the one that raises up all rulers and obviously, most rulers have no comprehension of these things. Many of them are murderers themselves. We see this even in the whole abortion issue here in the United States. Most have little regard for the good of the people they govern. They care only for themselves. But notwithstanding their ignorance, ultimately, according to the word of God, they're going to be held responsible by a holy and just God for the way they discharge their duties. We also read in, in the word of God that God has raised up leaders over his church, the church that began at Pentecost. And God has ordained certain men to be under shepherds of his flock and all believers are to submit to them. And the qualifications for those men are found in, for example, First Timothy three and Titus one, along with many other numerous passages. Moreover, God has also established men to be the leader of their family and for their wives and their children to submit to that leadership. Bottom line, what I want you to hear is God is highly organized. He is highly organized and he has not left us without resource regarding the qualifications for those who are to be leaders. Now, here in Acts 27, we don't see a specific list of qualifications that God has disseminated. We, we don't see a list, but we do witness the virtues of leadership being lived out in a very practical manner. 
And of course, this is applicable to every man who desires to honor God. So I want us to look closely at what happened in this remarkable account where a prisoner rises to a position of profound influence, even over the Roman centurion that was ultimately in charge, over all of his officers, over the ship's captain, over the ship's navigator, all of the seasoned sailors and soldiers on board the vessel. It's an amazing thing. And this is especially important to search committees that are looking for a pastor that are a part of our listening audience, some of which I interact with on a bi-weekly basis. So let me have you look with me at ten principles of godly leadership that emerge from this text. Number one, godly leaders are defined by character, not charisma. Now, before we look at the text a bit here on this, may I remind you that Paul's godly character is evident throughout his ministry. You know, he admitted in... First and second Corinthians, that he did not come to people as some charismatic leader, but he said in first Corinthians two that, that he came in weakness and fear and much trembling, not in pers- per- persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He said so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And you will recall in second Corinthians 10 His critics said, for example, in verse 10, that his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. And likewise, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 6, that even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. So, indeed, he lacked the presence and the charisma that the world would typically applaud. But isn't it interesting that he turned the world upside down by the power of God? You know, I utterly abhor most leadership and motivational seminars. I haven't been to one in a long time, but the ones that I've been to are so ridiculous to me. It's all about charisma. It's all about leadership style. It's all about how how you should dress for success. It's all about skills training in areas like like team building and strategic planning and decision making and all of that type of thing. And I'm not saying there isn't some merit to some of those things, but folks, none of these are found to be a priority in Scripture. None of them. Again, godly leaders are defined by character, not by charisma. It's not style, but it's integrity of heart, not the external traits that can be used to manipulate others. For example, in verse 3 of this text in Acts 27 we see that Julius treated Paul, Julius now being the the centurion that's in charge, he treated Paul, notice, with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So here we see the centurion respects and trusts Paul. Certainly this had to be perceived by his reputation and his demeanor. Paul is manifesting the fruits of the spirit. Spirit. Obviously, he had to respect him. He would have known about what Paul had uh, been charged of. He would have known that he had been under house arrest. He would have been aware of all of those things. And yet, isn't it interesting now, the centurion trusts him with his life. Because you must understand, had he let Paul go ashore and somehow escape, he would have paid for that with his life. So this is a remarkable thing. 
Paul had probably shown great kindness to him and to others. He no doubt had shared the love of Christ with him. I cannot imagine Paul going anywhere without doing that. And he had probably also told him that the Lord himself has appeared to me and I'm to stand before Caesar and you are going to be the one to get me there. Julius did not trust him and respect him. And later on, as we're going to see, follow him because of his winsome personality or because of his charisma, because of his leadership style, because he was a team builder. He trusted him because of his character. Now, you contrast this, for example, to our to this latest presidential election. We see that it's been all about rhetoric, not record, all about vows, not values, all about charisma, not character. Now, I care little about politics. I'm a citizen, as you are, of another kingdom. And we know that God raises up both good and evil rulers to accomplish his eternal purposes. We see that all through Scripture. In fact, Daniel the prophet said, It is the God of heaven who removeth kings and setteth up kings. So whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's Nero, Hitler, Reagan, Bush, Putin, Ahmadinejad, or Obama, God has put them in their position of leadership to accomplish his eternal purposes. He works all things after the counsel of his will. But it is intriguing to see the profound lack of discernment in in our country. And frankly, when you consider this recent presidential election and you compare these men with the divine standard, you will see that they fall far short, as do most all of our political leaders. By the way, as a footnote, we need to pray for our new president-elect. We need to pray for all of our leaders and we need to humbly submit to them unless they ask us to do things that are contrary to what God has told us to do. We need to pray for them, pray that they will be convicted over their sin and that they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We need to pray that, especially now, that we will be protected from the the very anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-family, even anti-American policies of the new administration that will come into office. So, number one, we see that godly leaders are defined by character, not charisma. Secondly, godly leaders look for a place to serve, not a ladder to climb. They look for a place to serve, not a ladder to climb. They rise to positions of leadership spontaneously by sacrifice, not not by status. It's interesting, throughout Paul's life and ministry, and certainly in this narrative, we see Paul serving in obscurity. We see him offering his life as a living sacrifice. We never ever see any sign of ambition. We never see Paul seeking to rise to some position of prominence or status. He never elevated or appointed himself. He simply served the Lord and repeatedly said that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus, that he had been appointed by God, not himself. Too often I see men enter into positions of ministry who are filled with ambition rather than committed to submission. They look for the spotlight. They love the attention. They want a stage. They're desperate to preach and to teach and to get up in front of people rather than being willing to serve in positions of anonymity and obscurity. Well, Paul was driven by submission, not ambition. He was constantly 
serving others in a selfless manner, doing God's work, God's way, come what may. And might I say to you young men that aspire to godly leadership positions, please know that if God has called and gifted you, He will put you into the place where He wants you to serve. You need to be affirmed by other godly men who recognize your giftedness. You know, it's interesting. Godly leaders will never have to search very long to find a place to serve. God will find that place for them. God will place people in positions where they have been supernaturally gifted and designed to function. And I might also add, you'll know you're a leader if you have people following you. If you have to somehow force that to happen, you're not a leader. Thirdly, godly leaders are given an audience. They don't have to create one. This is kind of a variation of number two. Notice in verses eight and nine. We see there where they they come to Fairhaven after this dangerous voyage. And now we read that it's already late uh, uh, September or early October. It's, it's, it's after Yom Kippur. So it's, it's kind of the beginning of winter. And as you will recall, it, it was absolute suicide to be on the seas of the Mediterranean during that time. And we read there that Paul began to admonish them not to continue on. Now, I want you to think about this. There's, we know that there's 276 passengers on board this vessel. And Paul has the ear of those in charge. Don't you find that amazing? That's a lot of people. And now he's admonishing them. Folks, think about this. You see, when God raises up a man to be his spokesman, he's also going to raise up an audience for him to speak to. God will always place appointed leaders in position of influence. Godly leaders won't have to be creative to somehow attract a crowd, nor do they have to develop some kind of a following. God will do that for them. Again, you've heard me say this before. I remember when John MacArthur said, quote, dedicate yourself, pastors, to the depth of your ministry and let God handle its breadth, end quote. That is just so true. And here we see again, God puts Paul in a position of influence where he can say these things. Paul never lobbies for it. Fourthly, we see godly leaders initiate wise and cautious judgment. They initiate wise and cautious judgment. Verse 10, he says, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. I want you to notice, Paul does not shrink back, but he takes the initiative to state what needs to be said and to exercise wise and cautious judgment. He he was bold and forthright in his approach and offered advice that would protect them from doing something foolish. You know, wise leaders, dear friends, will be ever vigilant to think ahead. They anticipate potential problems. They use their experience, even as Paul did, as a seasoned traveler who had been in three shipwrecks before. They will use their experience to evaluate every situation and guard against risky endeavors. I've seen leaders in churches before who have chosen to embark, for example, on a risky building program or some crowd-getting church growth strategy or some risky hire only to find out it falls apart. 
And maybe some of you men who are leading your families are not thinking ahead. You're not initiating wise and cautious judgment, perhaps with your finances, perhaps with other areas in your family life. Maybe you're a poor steward. You're not planning ahead in your own spiritual life. You don't have a strategic plan for yourself or your family. Not so the godly leader. Well, fifthly, we see that godly leaders care nothing about popularity. I want you to notice this in verse 11. It says the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what Paul or what was being said by Paul. Now, the Greek grammar here indicates that Paul is, is, is saying this repeatedly. It wasn't just one statement. And so although Paul's voice is being heard, his position was disregarded. But it did not stop him from taking a stand, did it? Godly leaders care nothing about popularity. Godly leadership has nothing to do with popular opinion. You know, even wise businessmen and, and, and rulers of nations will affirm this. Sometimes the right choice is a very unpopular one. Likewise, even in the church, we understand that the church is not some political campaign that has to depend upon opinion polls and survey groups for its positions. Nor is it a democracy where the majority rules. It's to be led by a plurality of elders that meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But I fear that sometimes in spiritual leadership, even in churches, we see pastors who are much more like politicians testing the political wind to see which way it is blowing so that they can be in the, in the majority. They depend upon marketing strategies and focus groups and opinion polls. And if you're not careful, what you end up doing is allowing the culture to define your ministry rather than the Word of God. Methodology tends to trump theology when you fall into that trap. As a pastor, I routinely find myself taking positions that I know are unpopular, often evoking criticism, sometimes from people within the church, but typically on the outside. When that happens, I ask two questions. Number one, is my position biblical? And number two, is it in the best interest of God's people? And frankly, if the answers are yes, then any dissent, any dissenting opinion, I kindly disregard. It's eternally inconsequential to me. Someday I will answer to God, not mine, not, not man. And mine is a stricter judgment than yours. And pastors need to understand that. And as you study the examples of godly leadership all through Scripture, there is one dominant theme that just, that just jumps out at you. You see this constantly. And that is, you cannot be faithful and popular at the same time. You're either going to be one or the other. And you need to choose which one you will be. And Paul opted for the truth. He never catered to be to the, the popular opinion. A sixth principle that stands out here is that that godly leaders care more for others than for themselves. Think about this. Since Paul had been assured that the Lord himself or from the Lord himself that he would end up going to Rome you would think that he would have been a bit more daring when they ran into trouble. 
You would have thought he would have said, you know what, Let, let's go ahead and take the risk. I know that's what you guys want to do. It, yeah, I know it's about winter time here and, and, it, and it's dangerous, but I know down in my heart I'm going to make it there, so I'm not worried about it. So let's, you know, full steam ahead. I know I'm going to make it. But that's not what he did. Why? Well, because that would endanger his friends, Luke and, and Aristarchus, but also it would run the risk of jeopardizing the safety of many others that he knew were lost in their sins. And throughout Paul's ministry, we see that he was committed to the well-being of others over himself. I mean, friends, why else would a man endure such enormous persecution and physical abuse? When you read the life of Paul, it is absolutely incredible what he had to endure. Why would he do that? Because he cared for others more than he did himself. And you know, when other people realize this in a leader, they will trust that shepherd, that leader. They will follow him through thick and thin unless they are unsubmissive to authority or have some other issue. Remember when Jesus said, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him uh, take up his cross daily and follow me in Luke 9.23. Why, why would any man do this? And the answer is because they have absolute confidence, total trust in the Savior, knowing that he cares for me above all things. He cares for me and loves me in ways that I cannot fathom. So I will follow him even to death. Everyone on that ship recognized that Paul had a selfless love for them. They knew he cared for them. And so as we see the story unfold, we see that they're all following him. They're all looking to him for leadership. Absolutely astounding. A seventh principle. Godly leaders are driven by evangelism, not the exaltation of self. You're not going to see any entrepreneurial spirit here. Paul is not in the ministry to make a buck. To somehow have a big kingdom or write some bestseller. This is a variation of the sixth principle that I gave you. That they're more concerned for others than for themselves. But we see this, for example, that they're driven by evangelism, not the exaltation of self. We see this in verses 23 and 24. Notice, we, we read that this very night an angel of the God, he says, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. I want you to think about this. The issue here is not so much that Paul feared for his life. I mean, we know that he said for me to live is... Is, is, is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, it, it wasn't so much that he was afraid that he was going to die. Moreover, it would be absolutely naive to think that Paul was unaware of the very high probability that he would face a far more horrific death than drowning as a result of his testimony eventually before the maniacal Nero. He probably had in his mind Maybe, boy, it'd be a lot easier to drown than to go through what I know I'm going to have to go through. So, indeed, Paul knew he was going to Rome. He, had, he, know, he knew that on the strength of, of the, the, the personal visitation of the Lord himself who promised him that. 
And the angel now here is merely reaffirming this. So what was Paul's greatest fear? Why would, why would the angel tell him not to be afraid? Well, I think the answer is he was fearful for the loss of his shipmates. Those who would die without Christ. Not only his beloved companions, Luke and Aristarchus, but also, and I believe primarily, those he loved for the sake of the gospel. Those who he knew were listening carefully to him present the glorious truths of redemption through faith in the living Christ, but who had not yet believed how he longed for them to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord that he loved. It's almost as if in verse 24, when he says, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. It's as if he's saying, Paul, I I want you to know, don't be afraid here. I'm going to spare the lives of. Of those men and, and, and give them further opportunity to hear the truth. Perhaps, I, I couldn't say for sure, this is even a veiled promise of an eventual salvation for these people. But again, what mercy we see extended to these poor souls. But friends, here again, don't you see, we have a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle. We have... The apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ being driven by a passion for those he knows will die in their sins and experience an eternal fate far greater than physical death. You will recall in Romans 9 verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Referring to his kinsmen who did not know Christ. Does that describe you? Do you have great sorrow and unceasing grief in your heart for those that you know and love in your family, at work, in your community that don't know the Savior? He went on to say, for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, referring specifically to his Jewish kinsmen. But we also see throughout his epistles that he he likewise sacrificed his life even for the Gentiles. Beloved, I I ask you, does this describe the passion of your heart? I ask you, does this describe some ache of grief within the very core of your being for those who live under divine wrath, causing you to pray for them and to Get out of your comfort zone and present the gospel to them. If not, what drives you? I'm sure that if we were all able to see your checkbook, we would have an answer to that. If we could see your calendar, if we could see how you spend your time, we would all have a good answer for that, would we not? Well, we see that Paul was driven by evangelism, not the exaltation of self. He had absolutely no care about his own pleasure. He had no care for status or popularity or to build some ministry empire. All he wanted to do is preach the glorious gospel of Christ and see souls transformed by that power and to see them grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. That's what drove him. Dear friends, this is the stuff of godly leadership. Number eight, godly leaders lead by example, not command. 
Godly leaders lead by example, not command. You know, some exercise leadership, and I've been around these folks, by being kind of an overbearing control freak. They're, they're, they're barking commands at people. They're kind of like living with a drill sergeant. And, and if you're ever around that kind of a person, may I encourage you to make it your number one priority to be freed from them. That is a terrible existence. Worse yet, some leaders perceive themselves to be too important to kind of roll up their sleeves and to pitch in and to work along others. They would rather kind of stand back and be the supervisor. Not so the Apostle Paul. Notice in verse 16 at the end, we read something interesting. It says, Luke says here, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And you will remember the ship's boat referred to the little, the little dinghy or the skiff that was towed behind these ships. And it's partially submerged now under the water in this violent storm. And notice it says we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. It indicates here that that Luke and Aristarchus and Paul and perhaps everyone else around. Are trying to help hoist this ship aboard in this violent storm. Imagine how heavy that would have been. And so he's involved here. Paul is involved also in verses uh, 34 and following, we, we see how he's encouraged the men to, to finally eat some food after 14 days. And then notice verse 35. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged. And they themselves also took food. My, here's a guy leading by example, not just command. Watch me. And isn't it fascinating? By now, in the story, the prisoner, Paul, is basically in charge of the whole ship. Absolutely fascinating. His godly character, his wisdom, his love and service had won them all over. Although that was never his intention. And friends, think about this. Though this was an apostle of the Most High God, a man whom God himself had appeared to, On several occasions, never in the course of his ministry does he ask anyone to do anything that he would not do himself. He was a living example of Christ's likeness. First Corinthians 416, we read Paul saying, therefore, I exhort you, you people at at Corinthian in, in the Corinth church, the Corinthian church, I exhort you be imitators of me. And we know he said that because he was an imitator of Christ. First Timothy 4.12, he told Timothy, Timothy, in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, I want you to show yourself an example of those who believe. Be an example. Set the way for them. Model Christ likeness. That's how you lead. Paul never tried to micromanage. You never see him dominating or controlling anyone. Second Corinthians 1.24, he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy. Isn't that great? Workers with you for your joy. Hebrews 13.7, the writer says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. And even Peter exhorted the elders in 1 Peter 5.2, I want you to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And then he went on to say, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing to be, but proving to be examples to the flock. Godly leaders lead by example, not by command. Number nine, 
Godly leaders speak with conviction and authority. They speak with conviction and authority. Verse 21, and when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of this ship. Now, again, I don't believe he's saying this to stick a feather in his hat and say, I told you so, not at all, but rather to to add credibility to what he is about to say, what he is going to go on to say to them. And then he went on to tell them about the promise that God had made to him through the angel. You see, friends, godly leaders know what God has said. And based upon the authority of divine revelation, that leader will, with utmost confidence and authority, be able to say, Thus saith the Lord. We see a similar scenario in verse 31. There, remember, he exposes the plot of the selfish sailors who think they're going to they're get off the ship on their own and let everybody else just die. And he said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Wow. There's no hesitation. There's no doubt. There's no ambiguity. There's no equivocation here. Only a clear, concise, decisive, forthright and confident statement of urgency and warning. You know, godly leadership is all about articulating divine truth with conviction and with authority. And frankly, much of of shepherding, much of pastoring is warning others of of spiritual dangers that they do not see because of either their their lack of discernment or their their ignorance or sometimes their insolence, many times immaturity. And frankly, this kind of leadership is not for the faint of heart. This is the very this is the very opposite, I might say, of politics that seeks the path of least resistance. You see, a faithful pastor, a faithful leader in particular, is going to be a watchman on the wall. And you must understand that biblically, even his opinions on matters of of Christian life and, and ethics and morality must be communicated with conviction and with authority because they are anchored in a deep understanding of the word of the living God. When speaking on matters addressed by Scripture, he doesn't. Paul doesn't preface his remarks or any other leader by saying, well, you know, here's some thoughts that I have that that may be valid. But, you know, I I would really like to hear what you have to say. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying that? Hey, Pharisees, come here. You know, I, I, I could be wrong, but here's some thoughts I have. You know, what do you think? Hey, guys, let's dialogue. You, You don't see any of that. Can you imagine the apostles saying that? No, they say, thus saith the Lord. With conviction, with authority. That's why in Matthew 7, 28, we read that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In First and Second Thessalonians, among other passages in the epistles, we have a description of the primary duties, for example, of a pastor. Let me give them to you. Praying, evangelizing, equipping. Defending, loving, laboring, modeling, leading, feeding, watching, warning, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, correcting, confronting, and rescuing. 
That requires conviction and authority. And routinely, the godly leader will be challenged, criticized, condemned, and mocked, but there can be no vacillation. There can be no equivocation, no ambivalence in his message because he speaks the message of God. Now, that's not to say that a leader should be overly confident in the sense of being arrogant or overbearing or rude or abrasive. But he must speak with the authority that God has given him. You will recall that Paul exhorted Timothy to preach the word. And he said, in season and out of season, which means when it's popular and when it's not. And he went on to say that it's not going to be popular, that people won't want to hear it. And certainly that's the truth today. But nevertheless, he says, I'm commanding you to preach the word. In Titus 1, verse 9, he says that an elder must be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And he went on to instruct Titus on how to deal with, with, with heretics and troublemakers in the church and the duties of the minister and how to live in response to God's grace. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Titus, these things I want you to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. And he said, let no one disregard you. Which literally means don't let anybody try to talk around you, to talk in circles around you. Now, believe me, most people in the church today absolutely despise authoritative doctrinal preaching and teaching. They hate that. They deride positions that uphold a high view of God, the purity of the church, the authority of Scripture, and even the authority of the shepherds that God has placed over the church. People don't like that type of thing. God warned that this would happen in the latter days. And many people abhor any kind of authority. You will see them in churches where they hang around the periphery. They never really get involved. They never submit themselves to any leadership. They answer only to themselves. Well, the godly leader will see this and deal with this. And a godly leader will forge ahead and speak with conviction and authority, fearing God. Not man. And finally, number 10, godly leaders inspire hope to the hopeless. We see this in verses 21 through 26 and verse 34 as well. Notice verse 22. He says, I urge you to keep up your courage for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Now again, friends, keep in mind, these men were sick beyond belief with seasickness. They've been thrown around for a couple of weeks it, it, it is just, it's an unbelievably horrific voyage. They haven't been able to eat. They think they're going to die. All hope is gone. Isn't it great to have an encourager in times like that? The last thing you want is some whiner. Oh, I don't think we're going to make it. You don't want that. Verse 25, he says, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Verse 33, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food. Verse 34, for not a hair from the head of any of you shall, shall perish. Verse 36, it says, and all of them were, what? They were encouraged. And they themselves also took food. Friends, are you an encourager or a discourager? Boy, if you're a leader, you need to be an encourager. Yeah, times are tough. They're going to get tougher. But you know what? God is in control. Heaven is coming. We've got to constantly hear those great themes. Well, I challenge you to hold me accountable to, to these ends and certainly measure your own leadership against 
the divine standard that we see illustrated here in Acts 27. Godly leaders are defined by character, not charisma. They look for a place to serve, not a ladder to climb. They are given an audience. They don't have to create one. They will initiate wise and cautious judgments. They care nothing about popularity. They care more for others than themselves. They're driven by evangelism, not the exaltation of self. They lead people by example, not command. They speak with conviction and authority, and they inspire hope to the hopeless. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, for these glorious truths and the way they impact our hearts. And Lord, I know that especially every man that is here, myself included, when, when, when we look at your standard, we, we just hang our heads in shame and say, oh Lord, we fall so far short. But thank you that you have communicated to us that which you would have us do. And you have also empowered us by your spirit to do them. So, Lord, we would just cry out to you that you would make us more like the Apostle Paul. To imitate him because he imitated Christ, who is our ultimate example. Speak to our hearts in this regard. And certainly speak to anyone here who does not know you as Savior. Lord, how I pray that they will be convicted over their sin and that they will flee to the foot of the cross and bow themselves before it and cry out for the mercy that you will so quickly give. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.